Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Rising sea levels, extreme weather patterns, extinctions of species. Our planet needs protecting. I'm Adam Vaughan, the Environment Editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope from The Times, in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. In this podcast, we hear from leading experts from around the world who are committed to finding solutions. These explorers, scientists, entrepreneurs and citizens are committed to a common goal, to protect our home, Earth. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Times Business Podcast, where this week we'll be looking ahead to the new reality of life in the markets and the business world following the EU referendum. I'm Robert Miller. That means sterling and how low it can go. Are the benefits for exporters outweighed by our addiction to imports? What can you do if you're invested in a property fund that shuts you out? And finally, it's the turn of the Deutsche Bank shareholders to vote on the so-called merger of equals with the London Stock Exchange. I'm joined by Patrick Hosking, financial editor and columnist of The Times, Philip Aldrich, our economics editor, and Martin Waller, editor of The Times' Tempest column, which makes him our top share tipster. Now, Governor Mark Carney has been talking at the publication of the twice-yearly financial stability report when he also unveiled a series of measures designed to keep the banks lending to businesses and consumers and perhaps overall to do what the Bank of England does, help maintain stability and the credibility of the UK financial system. He did, however, highlight possible risks about a Brexit vote, and this is what he has to say now. Some of those risks have begun to crystallise. In particular... Our concerns that the historically large current account deficit could be vulnerable to sudden shifts in foreign capital and sharp adjustments in sterling appear to have been borne out. Portfolio flows into UK equities and corporate debt appear to have slowed, and sterling experienced its largest two-day fall against the dollar since floating exchange rates were reintroduced almost half a century ago. Philip, in particular, the governor singled out sterling there. I suppose the first question is a lot of people might say it's good for exporters, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it will be good for exporters. Um, obviously, they'll be more competitive overseas. Um, last time we had a massive devaluation was in 2007, 2007, 2008. It, the, the pound fell by about 25%. We saw a bit of a pickup in exports, but we also saw uh, UK manufacturers increase their profit margins. So they, they, they basically retained a lot more profit as a result of this, which helped them get through the financial crisis. So uh, there is a good side to the collapse in the pound. Obviously, from our point of view as consumers, things that life is going to get more expensive. Our holidays abroad are going to be more expensive. Our Apple phones are going to be more expensive. Our food is going to be more expensive. A lot of it is imported from the continent so um, and elsewhere. Um, so there's a there's a there's a downside uh, for for us as consumers. Patrick, 
that means inflationary pressures, doesn't it? And would the benefit from more exports be sort of outweighed, if you like, to, to our disadvantage if inflation starts to creep up, or is it a good thing? Well, I think it depends on which which part of the, the economy you sit in. As Philip's saying, if you're a consumer, it's it's bad news. If you're an exporter, it's good news. And if you if you cater for the inbound tourist industry, it's, it's very good news mm. because that very quickly comes through to, to benefit hoteliers, restaurateurs. Martin? Yes, and I've spent the last few days wondering whether I've gone mad or the world's gone mad um, because I'm not quite sure the market, I'm speaking as someone who looks at stocks and shares rather than macroeconomics, has actually worked out which way it's going or what it's doing or, or, or what it should be thinking. I'll give you a few examples. I, I mean, Patrick mentioned hospitality. No question that if we have a lot more tourists coming to these, these, these shores, they will spend a lot more money, good for the wit bread of this world, good for the pubs, good for whatever. At the same time, while UK consumer demand may turn down, this, this should balance. But I'll give you a couple of other examples. I mean, supposing you are a, a global consultancy based in the UK, selling your services, whether it's engineering or whatever, abroad, can only be good. If you're a precision manufacturer based in the UK, selling extremely expensive, high-quality high kit abroad can only be good. We, we talk about inflation and the, the damage that it will do to the cost of importing foodstuffs that are abroad. can't be bad for the UK agricultural industry if all, all of a sudden UK product is 10 to 15% cheaper than what's coming in from wherever. I, I, don't, I don't think we've really thought this through properly, and there are so many opportunities out there for investors which are being missed in the general rush towards the exits. And the FTSE 100 has held its... Uh, held its own when European stock markets have been crashing because of the devaluation to a large degree in the pound. So a lot of foreign earnings, as they convert back into sterling, will convert back into more sterling. So that's that's propping things up there. I'd, I'd take issue with your point about service exports, though, because actually a lot of our service exports are basically companies based in the UK with operations overseas. So they pay staff locally to do the work locally. They just, you know, they happen to be based in the UK. And so therefore, this sort of qualifies as a as an export. And I think the inflationary effect, sorry, the competitiveness effect of a cheaper pound is much more direct on the manufacturing sector and much less on services. And obviously services is 80% of the economy. So I think that the impact uh, overall uh, is not going to be enormously dramatic, but manufacturers are going to definitely get a benefit from the um, the, the weaker pound. Yeah, the exchange rate is a fantastically effective uh, shock absorber, but we shouldn't be any doubt we are worse off. Our, our pound buys less than it did. I mean, it's all it's a bit like do you remember Harold Wilson saying the the pound in your pocket hasn't been affected one bit in 1967, and he was wrong then, and people who say we're not affected now are wrong now. I think. Yes, a slightly blank look from Phil a long time ago, <laughs> Phil. Let me assure you. Do you see parallels between the different? Uh, looking back as an economic historian, Phil, if you look back to the 60s, and as Patrick mentioned, the devaluation of the pound, remember it well, you know, going to the exchange rate mechanism at various times. Does this look more uncertain than any of the others, or is it just simply a crisis along the way that we can overcome with the bank, with the help of the Bank of England and the well, measures it's done? Well, if it, it, it's not fair to compare today to the ERM uh, in 1992, because we had interest rates, which actually at that point were around 12%. That went they, up to they, 15 for a short they, while. I don't think they ever actually went to 15. Their the plan was for them mm. to go to 15, but um, but we left the ERM that afternoon, and so they never actually hit 15. But um, interest rates had then halved uh, within three or four months. And the and so, you know, Sterling's collapse 
wasn't necessarily the trigger for the recovery. It was the it was it was the halving in interest rates, which uh, which was the trigger for the recovery. And this time, we can halve interest rates, but that's only from 0.5 to 0.25 percent, which is not going to have the same impact as from 12 to 6 percent in terms of you know personal uh, the spending power that is released as a result of that. So, the, obviously, the big issue is what's going to be the overall macroeconomic effect for the UK. We are a domestic orientated consumer led. Uh, economy so higher inflation if it if it squeezes people's spending is more likely to um, cause slower growth than the export benefit that we get will raise growth so the net position is more likely to be negative on growth overall what do you think martin i'm not remotely sanguine about the uk uk economy i was actually talking about investment prospects rather than Mm. actually what's going to happen i agree entirely we're in for a very difficult few months consumer spending falling we are going to see an awful lot of effects but unfortunately you have to if you, you talk about interest rates being very low so of course the mortgage rates yeah. now when you go back to that ERM exit mortgage rates as I bitterly remember hit about 20% at one stage um, that really was tough but your deposit that you needed surely that's one of the points isn't it? the deposit you needed was that much smaller relative to what you need now and that's the big problem getting people onto the housing ladder isn't it there isn't simply even the bank of grandma and grandpa even if you can find the deposit but the mortgage rates will have collapsed and so so borrowers would have had a lot more money to spend on other other things and that's that's the point after we left the erm because interest rates fell just going back to the the 1992 point the the other reason why why the devaluation then or depreciation of the pound was so successful was uh, because the european economy was growing quite nicely thank Mm. you which was an enormous help this time around it's very sluggish uh, and we won't get that same boost from our biggest export market, perhaps, as we did in 92, 93, 94. Martin made the point about looking at it from the point of sectors and investment, and there's one that's obviously come to the fore, and that's property funds, Patrick. You've been looking at this. I mean, what can people do, if anything, now that they've been effectively shut out from cashing in their investments? Is it going to get worse? Will they get access in reasonable time, do you think? Those who are gated can't do anything. They simply have to have to suck it up. And whether that, that uh, gating lasts a couple of months or a couple of years, we, we don't know yet. But there's a, 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 some of these funds have, have gone a different route. Instead of gating the funds, they've dramatically cut the value of their funds. We had Aberdeen the other day cutting by 17%, which should, in theory, balance people who want to sell with people who want to buy, and it means that people will be able to get out. So there's two different two different stories going on here. Just explain to me, and if you, this is the fact that they invest in physical property, don't they? These aren't shares. I mean, you can't simply, if you get a rush of redemptions, yeah, you can't go out and well, sell the building tomorrow. Some of them do invest in property shares as well, which they then can sell, which is why property shares have been have tanked in the last few days, partly because of expectations that these these open-ended funds will, will bail out. But most of them are in actual bricks and, and mortar, and it, they're very lumpy, illiquid investments, and you can't simply... Uh, sell them immediately. Tempest time, Martin. I mean, is there anything you can say in favour of the property sector? Property is one of the areas I would probably avoid, yeah. uh, particularly prime London property. I, not because I think it's it's it's. I mean, the, the, the share prices are well down. They're all trading on quite large d- discounts in asset value. But I think the uncertainty there is huge. The one thing I would be concerned about if I a property investor would be one or two very large multinational global corporations saying, actually, we were thinking of going to London. We've decided not to. 
because the effect on sentiment in the market would be huge. I'm talking about the apples in this world. And that would extra- extrapolate, Phil, presumably, over into the wider economy, wouldn't it? Yeah, you, you saw that in the, in the most recent uh, crisis recession that we had. Commercial property collapsed. All, the prices of commercial property collapsed almost... Uh, they, they halved, practically. Um, residential property only collapsed by 20%. So the commercial property market has a history, and it goes beyond that, but it has a history of being the uh you know the real casualty of uh of any of any crisis so i would i would probably agree with you on that one martin yes i, I think the other point if you talk to them now they all say it's all different this time we've learned from the last collapse um, that's been said every collapse since particularly the by the banks don't. indeed everyone says the same thing oh it's different now remember the new paradigm yes i do no don't believe it worry about that Mervyn King, when he was governor, always said about the new paradigm, didn't he, Patrick, that in fact it was for people who didn't have any better ideas. Do you think, finally, let me ask each of you on, on, on this particular thing, if you had to single out an area, as, as you listen to, to, to Mark Carney talking, he talked about the different areas of risk. To you first, Philip, what's the area that worries you most, if you like, in your job that you think has the potential to impact us severely in economic terms it's just a, f- a fall in confidence amongst households and businesses that puts a uh, downward pressure on the on basic economic growth and you start to see unemployment pick up uh, wages are held down um, and that will then have a secondary impact on restraining growth and so you kind of get into this into this sort of s- triggered by the effect of Brexit but then it's really the uncertainty and confidence effects which would then make a self-fulfilling problem to a, to a degree so I mean you know I'd, I'd be looking out for confidence and business investment data to pick up I think yes I agree but I think it's specifically political risk at the moment yeah. we simply don't know um, to what extent ministers etc are going to coalesce around a single view of how to extricate themselves from the EU. It could, could go on for, for months and months and months. We could have a general election. I mean, this could, uh, you know, while, until there's some evidence we know where we're going, I, I, I agree with Philip, it could be very, very difficult. And Martin? I think there are some sectors that look very badly over, uh, oversold. There are some sectors I wouldn't touch with the barge pole, and I think property is one of them. I, I agree with Philip. The trouble is it becomes a spiral where people get less and less confident. Um, they don't move jobs. Just say one thing. We are, of course, unemployment starts to tick up. It's starting to tick up from a very, very low level indeed. We're virtually, by some reckoning, fully employed. There's, there's a little bit of slack there. I hate to sound like the eternal Pollyanna. Uh, I agree that the next few months are going to be tough. Um, I thought people would just sit, sit there and, 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 and try and weather the storm. But we are not in a bad place. And the outside thing would be a Euro a Union crisis, not, not just a Eurozone crisis, but... You, you can have a dis, you know, dissolution of political institutions, you can have more referendums, you, can, you, you have a, a, a popular backlash against, uh, against Europe post-Brexit, uh, um, and that just adds to the political uncertainty and, and actually could end up sparking cause the, because the banks in Europe are in such a fragile state, particularly in Italy and Portugal and Spain a bit, um, you could actually end up having financial contagion coming through the markets. You know, it, it could wash back on us as well. Greece hasn't gone away. There is, a, as Philip says, a massive Italian banking crisis going on, which we've barely seen reported over here, because we're so worried about, about our own problems. Well, there's lots to ponder on there. I think we need a short break now, and when we return, we'll look at whether the merger between the London Stock Exchange and Deutsche Börse can still go ahead, with London as the head office. The Times Business Podcast is sponsored by Vodafone's Ready Business Britain. 2016 has been branded the year of the SME. This is your year. Time for your business to stand out. Are you ready? 
Vodafone's Ready Business Britain, in association with The Times and Sunday Times, has all the advice, insight and analysis your business needs to make this your year. Get ready. Visit readybusinessbritain.co.uk. Welcome back. Now, last week, you may remember, we looked ahead to the vote by the London Stock Exchange investors on the proposed deal with Deutsche Börse. And on one level, they delivered a thumping yes, 99% plus. Now, it's the turn of Deutsche Börse shareholders. This is how the official LSE website describes the deal. The newly merged company will keep both the London and Frankfurt headquarters. The new holding company, UK Topgo, will be incorporated in the UK. Martin, this is a story you've followed very closely, and indeed the Stock Exchange for many years. Will they vote for a deal with London still as the HQ? Well, the Deutsche Börse investors will vote overwhelmingly along the same lines as the LSE investors voted on Monday. Uh, They will vote overwhelmingly to accept because they are the same people. The same institutions are invested, largely speaking, in both companies. There's a huge overlap. Um, there's no question that vote will go through, again, with probably 98, 99% majority. It's a slightly different structure, which I don't want to go into too much, but it's actually a tender offer, so they need 75%. So they get to that stage, what could stop it then, if anything? Well, there are two obvious barriers. One is the European Commission, which has to look at the deal and clear the deal. That is doable because there are certain sales concessions that can be given, which are already widely known about. Certain bits can be sold off, and all parties are happy with that. The huge problem is going to be what happens in Germany among the German authorities. The main deal breaker is the state of Hesse, where Frankfurt is situated, which does have an absolute veto on the deal sometime by the end of the year. And the question is what concessions will be needed uh, or, or even possible um, to make the German authorities happy to let it through. Yes, yeah, the issue is with the regulators, isn't it, really? I mean, this is Baffin, isn't it, the, no, the, the German uh, regulator? No? Baffin has no say. It's a misconception. Baffin has views, and its views are influential, but it's not allowed to vote. So is there, from what you're saying then, it's just simply the state regulator that could block this, and is that legally binding, or is it, again, just a view? No, um, it's, I understand, the legal aspects of this are very complicated, I understand that the two people who can block it would be the Commission, which is, I think, unlikely, as I'll explain why, and the state of Hesse, which is apparently entirely possible. Whether it will happen is another matter, but it is potentially the deal breaker. There are other things going on in the regulator around the world, but those are the two ones to focus on, I think. So is it likely then that post-Brexit, if you like, that not a lot has changed, that London can still be the centre of this new stock exchange, even if it's outside the European Union? It can be done with a bit of, a bit of fudge. What's worth, worth bearing in mind is two things. One is that the terms of the deal, as voted on by both shareholders, cannot now be changed. So any fudge and mudge will happen after the merger's taken place, which will probably be first half of next year, first quarter of next year, possibly, if we're lucky. Thereafter, there are ways of getting around the problem. There are things that can be done. I don't believe the merger offers any real threat to London as a centre of securities trading. There are a lot of people in, outside, in and outside this building who disagree with me. Patrick, which way do you sit? Do you well, I, I agree with Mar- Martin. I, I don't see any massive regulatory hurdles why, why this can't get through without possibly a, a fudge on the on the headquarters. But this is a this is much more of a symbolic thing. I think that uh, the Germans just the idea of of, of this hugely important um, financial uh, organisation op- being headquartered outside the EU does does feel a little bit odd. 
Well, we'll know soon enough. Thank you all very much for that. And that's just about it for now. But remember, you can keep up to date with the vote. We'll be bringing it to you as soon as we know what it is. Remember, 99% sure that it'll go through. If you're a Time subscriber, you can take the opportunity to sign up to our daily morning and lunchtime emails. And if you don't have a subscription, please go to thetimes.co.uk. Take advantage of that special £1 offer. And if you want to hear us weekly, you can subscribe through iTunes. My thanks go to Martin Waller, Patrick Hosking and Philip Aldrich, all of them eminent columnists. They're on Twitter too, so follow them. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>